dark save for light being cast from the big tv screen and the imminent sunrise that's teasing the one starry sky with whispers of morning hey mike would you stop acting like a ass in podcast so you want me to comment on this episode <laughs> i do and more importantly uh george let me know ahead of time that he actually has nothing to say so <laughs> you can just let all of your thoughts out okay so what do we play we played Final Fantasy VII, and just to get right into it, I have giant nostalgia goggles for this game, like most people our age who were playing games in the 90s, I think, would be... It's kind of like, where were you when JFK was shot? But for us, it's like... <laughs> Final Fantasy VII is one of those game events that was like kind of... It was a big deal. Um, it was a big deal. It might be the biggest deal release of a Final Fantasy that I can think of. Ooh, that's... I might actually have to agree with that. Like, this this had some serious marketing machine behind it. This was like a whole cultural phenomenon. It spawned sort of a movie, and then an actual movie. Well, it also strikes a lot of 90s gaming nerd nerves of, like, Square was a Nintendo system developer, and this was their first non-Nintendo hardware game. And they did it for very good reasons, because, you know, <laughs> this game is three... It's, like, over two gigs of stuff, um, or, you know, whatever. It's three CD-ROM discs worth of stuff. Which is now a single patch for a Madden game. <laughs> yeah. Um, which just wasn't going to happen on the N64. Um, the the amount of, we're going to get into all of it, the amount of stuff <laughs> in this game may not be that big of a deal nowadays when games have, you know, $100 million budgets. But going from the Super Nintendo era where you have like a team of, you know, 10 or 15 is huge for a game. It's like now we got 100 people working <laughs> on this game. There's a whole bunch. This one guy's dedicated just to spiky hair. <laughs> My nostalgia goggles were... Uh, it's the reason we got a PlayStation. Uh, I was curious about it before, like I'd played Tekken or Battle Arena Toshin Den or some of the other like <laughs> early games. You're like, wow, it's 3D Ridge Racer, like all that crap was going on. <laughs> but before this game came out, that was like my local comic book shop had a TV in the back and you could give them a couple bucks and play a half hour of PlayStation. And they just had some games lying there. Like, that was how I played PlayStation. <laughs> that sounds so sketchy for some reason. <laughs> yeah. It was like, yeah, a couple folding chairs, and like, here's <laughs> here's Doom and Tekken 2, or the first Tekken. <laughs> and then this game came out. I, I wasn't aware that Metal Gear Solid was coming later. I didn't know. Like, it was just like... I was a Nintendo guy. I was excited for the 64, which wasn't out yet. Or Well, by the time this game came out, it was. But this game was coming, and it was like, okay, I guess we're getting a PlayStation because we have to. Yeah, so I'm actually kind of glad to hear you say, like, this is why you got a PlayStation because this is why I got a PlayStation. And when I talk to people who, like, went the N64 route for whatever reason or they went the PlayStation route for whatever reason, I am rock solid positive that I was playing Final Fantasy 3 and then I found out where the next Final Fantasy, you know, American 3, 6, where the next Final Fantasy was going and it was going to be on PlayStation and I was like, I guess that's what I'm getting, right? <laughs> like I just, 
blindly followed the series and continued to blindly follow the series for like another decade and a half after this. And uh, I actually have a fun story about this. So this game came out in uh, September of 1997. And they actually, while I was typing this date into the notes, I noticed that it came out on September 7th, 1997. So 9-7-97. Oh, so, no. So, yeah, super clever. Um, so I uh, I didn't get a ton of games when I was a kid, which is like one of the things that attracted me to JRPGs is there was a lot to get out of them, right? And uh, I played Final Fantasy, you know, basically my entire life. And I said, this was the thing I wanted for Christmas. I had a PlayStation. I think I'd gotten it the year before, but I wanted this game for Christmas. And Final Fantasy VII will always have a special place in my heart as the year my mother had to apologize to me because the one thing that I asked for for Christmas (laughs) was this game. And what she did was she put it inside of a shirt box and she taped it to the middle of the box so that you couldn't tell it was like a little CD case. And then she left that box in the back of her closet. And so we finished Christmas morning and Christmas morning for me was always the same. Like I, you know, I had my nice little pile of gifts and like there was always that one thing that I really cared about and it was basically always a video game. And so I would go and spend Christmas day playing whatever game like I really wanted that year. And my mother asked me, did you get everything you wanted? And I was like, noticeably sad because it's hard (laughs) when you're like 12 to not show that you're upset about the game. And she was like, you know, aren't you going to go play your game? And I was like, "I, I didn't. I I didn't get a video game (laughs) and she, the look on her face was just like, she was completely crushed. Like she had ruined her son's Christmas morning. (laughs) So she ran into her room. She found the box, you know, where the, wherever it was, they hid Christmas presents. And then like, she came out and she was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I was like, no, it's okay. It's really okay. But I'm seriously going to go in my room and play this all day now. Thank you. Now, were you a snooper? Did you go and find presents before Christmas that hadn't been wrapped yet? And just, retcon like reconnaissance i never uh found unwrapped presents a couple of times i found wrapped presents because they were like not super well hidden they were like in a corner of their bedroom and i like had to go in their bedroom to get something like that a a big bathroom and so like some of my stuff was in their bathroom because my older brother and i would like see the presents and but it's like what am i going to do like go over and shake the box it's like the middle of the day <laughs> they're in the next room like so i like i always knew that presents were in the house but they they wrapped they either wrapped stuff as soon as they got it home or maybe even they wrapped it like at the store cuz my mother worked in retail for a while so she had like you know a big wrapping station like in her store um i never yeah, I don't, maybe when I was really small, but I, I don't remember being the like, ooh, I, this feels like it's a board game that I asked for, something like that. <laughs> yeah, I was I was not that good. But I was thinking not only uh, was did I play this not right, you know, or right when it came out, but I think I have probably replayed this game about 10 or more times. Like this is... How does that rank in your final, like obviously tactics, but leave that one aside, <laughs> other Final Fantasies? Um. I would say this is probably when they started to go down. So uh, two and three. So American two and American three, right? Four and six. 
on the Super Nintendo, I played those no question the most. And then seven, I played a whole lot. And then I never played eight, nine, I played less, 10, I played less, right? And and so on like that. Because yeah. as I got older, I just had less time to replay a 60 hour JRPG. And then you've played 13, 47 times. <laughs> God, we could do a whole sad side episode about that series because I have really great. Some of my favorite hallways are in that game. <laughs> But have you played the trilogy, Mike? Because I finally this year finished the trilogy and I can't think of a much worse way to spend your time. <laughs> but we don't have time for that, Mike. We have to talk okay. about this game. Get into the game. So wait. People have been mashing the forward 30 seconds this whole time. Before we jump into visuals, though, um, I do want to uh, do like a really like because I've been rushing through like the thank yous and stuff for a couple of recordings now. Um and I do want to like really appreciate like people who come onto the Twitch stream and who've been following uh, people who are leaving reviews like that. You know, we joke like, oh, it's it's really nice to see, but like that's it's that's a hundred percent genuine, heartfelt. Like, if you are looking for a way to do something for free that's really nice for someone else, uh, go leave a review, go leave a rating, come you know chat with me when I'm streaming on Twitch, like find us on Twitter, go out in front of your house and shout, but stay six feet away from everyone else outside. Um, like that, that stuff really, really matters. So all those links are in the show notes. They're some of the only links that go in the show notes is how to get in touch with us. Um, so if it's not hard to find, and there's also a link to your stuff cause you did the show art for this. Yay. Yay. Now, now we could jump into the very, very low poly visuals. <laughs> how are the graphics? Well, I've, I've, as you guys branched, as we, as a show, all three of us here, have branched beyond the 16-bit and 8-bit games for, you know, is it over a year now? You guys have been in the new systems? We guys? Yes, it is. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's common to talk about, like, early 3D is like the weird, uncanny valley graphics, but I actually have a lot of very happy things to say about the game, even though it has very terrible early 3D graphics <laughs> in a lot of places. And that's... Mostly that even though it's very simple and very blocky and everyone makes fun of Cloud or Barrett having these, you know, like six or seven polygons per hand, <laughs> <laughs> they're super unique. There's so much, so much character popping off of the screen. Every main character is wildly different and recognizable from each other. Um, there are hundreds of different kinds of enemies. It feels like they're not just palette swapping like some other games we've talked about in the past. <laughs> like they're this game is bursting with artistic effort and creativity and, and uniqueness all over it. And so I think the graphics are pretty fantastic, even if they're limited by the time they were created. So I'm really glad you said that first because there's something ineffable i couldn't quite figure out how to describe about how i felt about the visuals because they're bad right like <laughs> they're not good and yet i found myself consistently not caring like i would make a joke or i would you know write something you know smarmy in my notes or be salty about it to whoever was within earshot but like as soon as that comment was gone, like the bad feeling was also gone. And I went right back to completely enjoying it. And I think the like love and care and, and dedication to the craft is really coming through even all this time later. Right. It's no longer like, Oh my God, three dimensional, right? Like that feeling has passed. 
but the fact that every character is absolutely recognizable, like you said, right? Every monster is unique and interesting, very, very little palette swapping, right? And and when it is used, it's used kind of in the proper way to telegraph how that monster is going to behave or be different from the last time you saw that kind of monster. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah, that that care, that that attention to craft, I think is why you can overlook these low poly graphics with super grainy textures from early PS1. Whereas in some other early PS1 games, you're just like, Oh my God, everything looks like they drew it on a Sandy beach. Like it's terrible. And <laughs> yeah. and yet I did not feel that way about the graphics in this at all, but it, it's, it's weird to juggle that in your mind, right? Like everyone looks like they're not finished rendering. And yet <laughs> I'm not really that bothered by it. This is the first Final Fantasy that I am aware of. Maybe there's minor exceptions in some of Square's earlier RPGs, but in general, it's not as heavy on the medieval fantasy. You still have some summon spells and some magic and some Odin and Ifrit and Shiva are still around, but at the same time, it's uh, it's very modern. There's office buildings, there's cities and streets, and you know all of Midgar is pretty unique for RPGs at the t- for JRPGs at the time. Well, this, so in Final Fantasy VI, there's like the capital, which is mechanized but not modern. It's more like it's in, steampunk. In a, yeah, it's industrial revolutiony steampunky. This Final Fantasy and a lot of the Final Fantasies that came after are way more modern the thing that i think they sort of missed the mark a little bit with is that those pieces like they fit together because the the patent on lego blocks had expired but midgar is not a lego block it is like a a legar block (laughs) and everything else in the world is lego because everything else in the world looks cohesive all the buildings are largely made out of wood and stone right people get everywhere by chocobo or on foot right and then it's like there's just this random hyper technical hyper futuristic city and it's beautiful and it's amazing visually and it's you can see why they wanted to design a city like that because it gave them a chance to be like look everything's made out of glass and metal and there's the glowy you know mako tubes that the energy flow through but how would you end up with a world where all of the technology was so densely, you know, in, in one area, like it hasn't bled out into the rest of society, except for this one random town with a spaceship. <laughs> like it's visually it's, it's, there's a bizarre lack of cohesion that is, I think intentional. Cause when you look at Midgar on the overworld map, even the dirt and grass surrounding it is different than the grasslands surrounding every other town like Midgar is this abomination. It's like a blight upon the landscape. And that's, I mean, essentially the entire story. Yeah. I was going to say this, at least you can make the argument. It fits the story that Midgar is a weird cancer on the earth. <laughs> literally. <Yes. laughs> it's, is it also just, you're, you're basically describing the William Gibson quote about the futures here. It's just not evenly distributed. Like, it's the futures in Midgar only. Yeah, only. Except. Yes, that and that's the thing is they. I mean, we're, I don't want to stray too much into story this early on, but like, there's the, the lack of diffusion is noticeable, right? Because everywhere you go, you don't see cars, even though there are cars in Midgar. You don't see flying contraptions, even though they have space travel. Like, it's the 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 fantasy aesthetic is 
permeates the entire world except for Midgar. And like narratively, I think it makes total sense. But visually, it is like, shouldn't I see some signs of technology outside of Midgar and the other areas that Midgar controls, like the giant cannon? But it's it's not like it's it's these very distinct pockets with very clear borders. And on the other side of those borders, zero modern technology, right? Nothing that couldn't have been made past like the mid 1800s, if even that recent. Yeah, there's a a, a pastiche. I don't know what you want to call it. A, <laughs> a different bits of clip art as far as world thematically. That is kind of it is kind of clashing, um, arguably. You know, one of the other things about this game that was common in the early PlayStation era, Resident Evil was this way. The other Final Fantasies of this era were uh, kind of static pre-rendered backgrounds um, with animation on top of it. And this is also wildly different than um, the previous Final Fantasies that were obviously all pixel art. And so, you know, one of the things that gives you as a palette in this game is the point of view of each room and scene, which I know we're going to have things to say about mechanically later. (laughs) It gave them an artistic variety that you're not just the same overhead or single isometric view in every single scene. They got to choose that angle based on where you are. If we're in front of a giant building, we can have a really wide shot. If we're inside somewhere, we can, you know, they could reframe it. And that, feels pretty new in this game even if it's not something interesting to say for games now which can have any camera angle they want at any time although when you say that i think modern games often get this wrong by never using an artistic camera right a lot of modern games are like oh well the player controls the camera so as they're walking up to the shinra building if they want to put the camera super low and look up at how massive the tower is sure they could do that and it's like yeah but they won't like you the game designer need to set the tone and some of the way you do that is how you frame the shot yeah and there are a lot of shots in this game that are just needlessly 3d wooshy wooshy (laughs) they're just like oh we're gonna do a pan here and it's like why because we can do pans now, (laughs) but there's a, there's for every one kind of silly, like, Oh, look 3d. There's like 10 very well thought out cinematic artistic uses. And, and I think the Shinra building is a fantastic one because no player would ever do that. Right. Most players do not under virtually any circumstances needlessly look up at a towering building, but because they, force that shot on you right the the building and then it like pans down and then when you are going like in through the little lobby area that's one of the rooms where the camera is pulled way back so you feel very small and just this massive like industrial complex like oh god this is the bureaucratic nightmare future that (laughs) you know we individual citizens what can we do against this and you can't get any of that in a modern Final Fantasy that is a hallway simulator where it's like, oh, you're in a big building, but the camera's always right up your ass so you can see the thousands of polygons on this lovingly rendered ass. Like that's, <laughs> I, I wish more modern games, even if they gave you a free roaming camera like 99% of the time, like sometimes take the control away from me and give me an artistic shot. And that's something that early PlayStation games actually did really, really well. And it's it's funny that it's kind of a side effect of the pre-rendered backgrounds they had to do that yeah 
and I don't think you guys have done Resident Evil, but uh, that game has terrible <laughs> controls. But part of why it's so scary is the camera angles being so limiting and stingy with what you can see. Well, and even more horror movie tropes, right? Like there's, I think in Resident Evil 1, there's a hallway that when you walk down it, it uh, is from one angle and then you have to go back through that hallway and now it's a different angle and it's the star of the shot is the windows, which if you know anything about horror cinema screams, something's coming through those windows, right? Yeah. So, so like every time an early game with like a kind of pre-rendered background, if they change the camera angle or if it's dramatically different than it is most of the time, or if it does like a cinematic pan or something, they, they can't just free roam the camera in a 3d environment like they can do now if they put in the work to draw the backgrounds so that they could do this artistic shot that means they had to think why would we put in all the work to do this artistic shot which means every artistic shot with a few exceptions is there for narrative reasons sometimes mechanical reasons like oh you need to like direct your attention over here because that's where like the objective is or whatever and i really appreciate that kind of thing in a game that's all about the narrative like yes please pull me into your world with the visuals like that is part of what i'm here for yeah i'm overall i feel pretty positive about the graphics even though absolutely you can mock how dumb and blocky the the characters are you still never confuse cloud with barrett or anyone else like they're completely unique looking one of the things about the character models that stood out to me uh, as I was watching it suddenly clicked with me as I was watching the ending cinematic is there's at least let's see there's when you're walking around in an area like in a town right there's that character model there's the battle character model which is different there's the cinematic character model which is like a high res version of the area (laughs) character model yeah (laughs) and then there's the fmv character model which is like the highest res most fully rendered right and so there's at least those four maybe others that i'm i'm not thinking of yeah oh well like for cloud he also gets to be on the snowboard and on the chocobo right so he has at least one extra motorcycle Yeah. yeah and the motorcycle um that transition from character model to character model that is not something that aged terribly well. And part of the reason that that aged poorly is actually, I think, kind of hilarious, which is the transitions are super fast. Like, I was shocked how quickly the game actually goes from overworld to battle model to FMV. Like, those different kinds of of visuals there's no like now loading screen or any dumb crap like that like it is instantaneous which means you go from seeing hoof hands to you know fully rendered (laughs) 3d with a mouth and nose instantly and that was an incredible technical achievement at the time but now like looking back it actually calls a lot more attention to like oh sometimes you're gonna see these pretty sophisticated character models and then we're going to jump you right back to ho fans and like that's it's like it's funny that the the thing that made it a spectacular visual demonstration at the time is has aged it poorly like after the fact i was wondering about because the most curious one to me is the pre-rendered video portions that are hoof-handed 
And yes. it's like, <laughs> it, it, is that just a budget time? Like they just didn't have time to do all the high end ones. And they're like, here's our compromise. Or was that at the time, like, it'll be less jarring to go into this video if they look similarly dumb? <laughs> um, I think the ones that are pre-scripted but still hoof hands are usually the shortest. Like, if you took all of the cutscenes in the game and you timed them, there is probably a minimum cutoff where they said... If we're not going to have this cutscene last for more than like 45 seconds, then we're not switching to the super expensive, super high fidelity graphics, right? Because like right in the beginning of the game, you know, the reactor bridge collapses and Cloud falls. He falls a lot when he's falling. Right, so that's in the that's in the normal hoof hands. And why do we fall? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, so he, you know, he falls, and but that whole cutscene's fifteen seconds, right? Like it's it's not long. But then, you know, when when spoilers, Aerith dies, and you know, it's super sad, and Cloud <laughs> and Cloud like you know drops her into the bottomless pit that he was somehow able to stand in, even though she sinks like a thousand feet down. Um, <laughs> Like, that's all fully rendered. You know, the end of the game is fully rendered. Like, there's plenty of stuff that is fully rendered, but I'll bet those are the longer, more emotional cutscenes where they wanted, like, some expression on the face, like, something that made them seem more human. And then the the ones that are just more like, here's a thing that happened, and you need to know that this happened, that's where they stuck to, uh, you know, hoof hands. Anything else about graphics? Well, how about we just move straight into the gameplay part of graphics? Well, I do. So this actually, this might be a good transition into that because uh, one of the things that I really liked about polygon graphics and their ability to scale is that every pixel art Final Fantasy has this one weird thing in common. Monsters are huge so that they could give them more detail. And then the sprites are smaller because there has to be a bunch of them on screen. So, like, when you fight a random soldier, his sprite is giant because they wanted to, like, lovingly draw him, and that's what they had to do. In starting with Final Fantasy VII, the monsters could actually be the right size relative to your size. So when you're fighting other humans, they're about the same height as you. When you're fighting some monsters, they're actually really small. When you're fighting some monsters, like the weapons, you know, the end game, like optional bosses, they're frigging massive. Like they're gigantic and the camera has to pan way back and your characters are tiny. And most of the time, like when you play a pixel art Final Fantasy, you can guess like, oh, this enemy is not supposed to be three times the size of my character. That's just they wanted to draw the graphic with more pixels. And so they had to make it larger and 3D is not restricted in that same way. So you get a sense of scale that pixel art just wasn't, I mean, you could do it now, but at the time they just didn't have a way to convey that scale. And so I actually really enjoyed understanding my size relative to the rest of the world, particularly the the baddies that I was fighting. That scale thing is something they play fast and loose with a bit with some of the <laughs> part, like early in the game, you're in a church with Eris where the Turks are chasing her. It's like one of the first 
other than the flower girl bump in. It's like the first time you talk to her. And you go through this giant church and you go up these stairs and you climb out the roof and then you're outside the roof and it's like the tiniest little cartoon building ever. <laughs> and you hop off of it to like go over that's, the roof. That's true. That's fair. And is this some like, you know, bigger on the inside kind of... <laughs> By the way, I, I believe the way you meet Eris is called a meet cute. Oh, no. <laughs> so one of the ways you get a sense of scale in the world is through like verticality, right? You were talking about like interior spaces before and how they can give you like artful camera angles. Uh, and that means you can like go up and down things like ladders, which it's not always obvious you can do that because everything is just a solid static JPEG background. And the way they get around that is with the little like green indicator, which is super helpful, except for all of the times they don't include a ladder indicator. Yeah. Because there's a lot of times where you can go up or down something or in or out through something, and they do not give it a green or red indicator. So there's like a sense of, of verticality to the way some of the shots are framed, particularly in interior spaces. And they do their best. I mean, I know they had to place all those indicators manually, but... Sometimes they forgot them and sometimes they're not pointing yeah. in exactly the way you would expect. And so, yeah, earlier we were talking about how this art style and the technology enabled them to have totally different camera angles for every room if they wanted or each scene. This makes some of the scenes horrifically confusing to navigate. Mm -hmm. And one of the other quirks of this game is this was pre-fluid analog control. <laughs> Final Fantasy VIII was fully analog smart but this one is eight direction only. And so you you have the isometric problem of like, when I press down, am I going southwest or southeast? <laughs> Compounded by the infinite possibilities of whatever angle the scene you're on is. And so the number of times I walked back into a door when I thought I was going to leave, like I was going to continue into the room sideways from the door, but I walked into the door I came in. That happened not terribly often but often enough that i was like god can we just get analog control for this well how many times were you like okay i need to just walk up this hallway and then you just like smash face first into the wall <laughs> yeah. or into some other barricade and it if you quickly recover it doesn't take too much away from the drama but there were a few times that i was having such a hard time navigating through a particular room or through a particular area and i was like i'm I am very aware that I'm playing a video game right now, right? Like the, the visuals here are super detrimental to my experience because I can't make anything happen. Like, it's like, oh, we got to get from here to there really quickly. And I'm just like, dirt, 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 like running into walls, running back yeah. and forth like an idiot. And I'm like, this is kind of sucking the drama out of it. And you're mashing the activate button because you don't know which part of the pipe will hop to the next pipe because it's unlabeled, it's unclear. And yeah, yeah this was very frustrating for me. Um, so, you know, sometimes it's not a big deal, but there are very complex scenes or very zoomed out scenes. And as you're just like, I... I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what's... <laughs> how, how do I do anything? And uh, so the, what makes it worse is not only that the infinite variety of camera angles makes you... Like with tactics, it's isometric. You have that problem, but it's consistent. Every time you press down, it's going... I don't remember offhand which way it goes, <laughs> but I know that you could commit that to muscle memory. But in this case, you don't get that luxury because every scene is a different angle. Yeah, and... 
even for so I, I watch speedrunners sometimes and one of the speedrunners I like speedruns Final Fantasy 7 and even he occasionally will screw something up because the control and I mean there's someone who's put thousands of hours into this game and still every once in a while he will screw up trying to you know tightly navigate an area to do it in the fastest way possible it's like yeah because you don't you're trying to navigate a 3d space with the d-pad and 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 i'll say like i don't want to segue too far into controls and mechanics but uh i have a a friend uh who i was like walking her through the final fantasies like oh play this one now play this one because she never played them before and I hadn't played seven in a while at this time. And she texted me and was like, how come the analog sticks don't work? And I was like, Oh, cause on the PlayStation, there's like the button to turn the analog controls on. And she was like, no, I know you can't <laughs> use the analog sticks in this game. And I was like, that can't be right. And I, I went and looked it up and I was like, Oh, son of a gun. And then like when I sat down to do this, that was probably two years ago. And then like when I sat down to do this replay, like right from the word go at the train station, I was running back and forth and up and down the kind of like an idiot. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is going to be a problem because it's, it's not something you can internalize. Like you said, you can in Final Fantasy tactics, like you have to basically learn how the controls are going to work on every screen and then memorize all of that. And even within the camera angle, some of the objects in the room are angled different ways. So you may press up thinking you're going to go a certain way, and you might actually go that way along an object. And once you get past that object, veer into a crazy direction (laughs) that was the actual direction. And the game was just being, it was trying to help you by being forgiving and still letting you go around this object. But then you're like, oh, I guess I'm going this way now. Yeah, and this is... I haven't played any of the later re-releases of Final Fantasy VII, not the remake, right? But like the the PC re-release. <laughs> Great, we get to add that to the pile of <laughs> that's right things you have to say every time you mention this game. Oh God, I know. But like the the PC uh, re-release that came out, I think like a year later. Um, I never played that one. I assume that includes full analog controls because it's no. I don't know. I feel like they kind of rush that out as fast as possible without yeah you're probably i feel right. like it's one of those things that are just like it's not worth it we're not going back and changing it just oh, leave it. So, okay so yikes but I, I wonder like what it would feel like to navigate this world with an analog stick like presumably better but maybe there would be spots where it's like no we were expecting a hard eight directional input and so with the analog stick like that would make navigating certain things harder like i don't like it's impossible to not talk about the controls when you talk about these visuals because these things are completely coupled in a way that was unique to this moment in history the visuals are are spectacular in a lot of ways but they're hard to interact with because you're trying to navigate a three-dimensional environment with the d-pad but not always from the same angle and sometimes from like really dramatically weird angles. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's awkward. It's awkward. probably the best possible word for it. <laughs> yeah. It's the most generous you can be with it. <laughs> you also have a little bit of that, you know, like you're watching Looney Tunes and the backgrounds really finely detailed and painted and you know, it's not going to change because of the way it looks. And then you see <laughs> the crate that the coyote is about to do something with is like flat shaded. 
you kind of have that with objects in this universe. You have, even though some, there are there are exceptions, there's doors or little things that do have animated states that look pre-rendered, but any chest or those kinds of things looks like a bright poppy cartoon. Yeah, the the potions, the materia, it's like, here I am, I'm a solid color and I shine. <laughs> yeah. That's a little weird aesthetically, but very helpful gameplay-wise, so I don't have a problem with it. So the last thing I really needed to make sure we discussed, I can't say for sure if I think goes better with visuals or audio. So do you have anything else for visuals? Because if not, I will use this as my transition into audio. Go for it. So the ending cutscene is by far the longest, even though it awkwardly suddenly stops and then the game is over. Um, <laughs> but it's the longest one, right? They save the big expensive to animate cutscene for the end of the game. Um, but it's also, I think, the only or one of the only FMVs, right? Full emotion video, a phrase that like younger or lower games literacy people are probably like, what the hell is an FMV, right? A full motion video. Uh, this one has dialogue, but... It doesn't have spoken dialogue, even though they could have recorded audio and put it onto the CD-ROM. They didn't, probably for budget reasons, because they would have to do, you know, English voice actors and Japanese voice actors, but then also every other country that this game was released in, right? They would have had to localize the, mm -hmm. the voice actors. So they didn't do that. But they made it even weirder because none of the things happening in those scenes have sound effects. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like watching uh, like Steamboat Willie. Like there's, it's like an old Mickey Mouse cartoon. Like there's all of this lovingly, beautifully written music and these, you know, graphics that for the time were incredible and have, they're okay. Like this is where they really put most of their graphical energy. It's like into this cutscene, And it's so hard to take it seriously because there's all this lip flapping happen and this giant white text at the bottom and no sound effects, right? No whoosh, no explosions, right? And it's all the little musical tricks that they've done for a hundred years in silent films <laughs> and in silent cartoons to like, like someone's falling. So, you know, the music has to fall and like something dramatic is happening. So a big punctuated like boom, boom, right? There's it's, it, it didn't age well. And I was like, <laughs> I'm so aware of how this looks versus how this sounds. And like the visuals are good and the music's good, but like, it's not a, it's not a, like a cohesive thing. It's like this weird Mickey mouse cartoon. It's, 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 it's a thing. It's like quite an awkward kind of thing yeah. that they just, you understand looking back how it happened, but it's just weird. It's so weird. Yeah. I, it's they might have been damned either way because like you've seen those super cuts of ps1 voice acting like <laughs> from how good it was in this era and yeah you set metal gear solid aside and it's a pile of you know hot melting garbage <laughs> as far as voice acting and games is and so i kind of shudder like you know the first full voice act of Final Fantasy. None of the PS1 games had voice acting. It wasn't until PS2 with Final Fantasy X. <laughs> and I'm not a big fan of the voice acting in any Final Fantasy. Probably though, obviously they're a lot less. They're, they're fine now. It's not a big deal. They're fine. But like 10 is like I don't know. It's not amazing. And so yeah, it's not good. I have. I. It's sort of like I can't rebuke anything you just said because it is really weird to be a silent film and yet to have these amazing visuals but 
it could have been even worse if they tried to put voice acting on it and it was like terrible. I, I think I honestly would have been fine with on-screen text if they had done sound effects. The fact that there is no sound effects in that cutscene, and I mean, the music is good because the music in this game is amazing because Nobu Matsu, and I'm sorry, I'm sure I just butchered the pronunciation of his name, but like... <laughs> He's a genius. His work is phenomenal. And some of his best work came from this game, right? Like some of his most iconic pieces ever or versions of earlier music he'd written, like the overture, right? Like the final fantasy, like right. That's been in like almost all mm-hmm. of them somewhere. Um, this version of the Chocobo music is one of the most iconic versions of the Chocobo music. Like it, the Sephiroth, right? It's all there. Like the, yeah. the music's amazing. And somehow they just swung for the fences in the closing cinematic. And for me, it just doesn't land. I think a good counterpoint, if you want to criticize them more, you could say Blizzard had been doing amazing cinematics at the same time. Starcraft came out a few months, like six months later, and has voice acting all over that game. Um, Maybe not a 40-hour game. Like, we're not talking about having voice acting the whole game, but even just for the cinematics. And that voice acting, I think, holds up pretty well especially from that era. So maybe maybe it's worth digging square a little bit and being like, you should have just dug in and given us some good voices. Yeah, or, yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I could almost, at least in the cinematics, I could forgive, because all the other FMVs have sound effects, only the last one is this weird <laughs> Mickey Mouse cartoon, right? That's what's so jarring about it. Like when uh, you're, you're riding uh, the motorcycle, right? There's music. There's like the cool, like tense music. It's like kind of upbeat, but like things are, are nerve wracking, but the motorcycle makes noise. The, when the glass shatters, that makes noise, right? Like the, the rest of the world continues to exist in all of the other cinematics, whether they're hoof hand cinematics or FMVs and just not in this one. Yeah. And, and it's, I, th- I think part of the reason it's such a, an odd thing is you're watching the cinematic. You just came off of the Sephiroth fight, right? With probably the most popular iconic piece of final fantasy music that will ever be written, right? Like it's, (laughs) it was used in all of the marketing. It's they're They're teasing it throughout the whole game. Like every time you see Sephiroth, it plays like the same melody, but Mm -hmm. it's like the, the low, like, I don't know. It's like cello kind of version. And and then like it's probably third or fourth like you got to put the prelude and the battle victory right at the top. But yeah, other than mm, those, yeah, yeah, the the dun, 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 I I would say that probably had a similar pop culture penetration. But I mean, I have met people who know nothing about Final Fantasy who knew the Sephiroth music, right? Because this was the first Final Fantasy that was like cool and (laughs) and so you know a lot of those things like the the look of the characters but a lot of the music like bled out into the popular consciousness and i think it wasn't that long after was it 10 when umatsu retired and went and started the black mages and was like i'm just gonna go play the music i've already written for a living something like that he did that Blue Dragon game, but yeah, I think so. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> but I mean, you, you're. I'm. I'm curious. Like you, you know, you, you often don't speak up, right? You keep your thoughts to yourself. Like this game has not just really pop culture iconic music, but I think like really, a, like an amazing orchestral score. Like 
for you, was the PS1 era not a breath of fresh air when they could like put CD quality music into video games? Yeah, it's wonderful. And uh, I do have comments about that because this game, for the most part, I I don't know if there is any... Is there any actual CD recorded orchestras in the original soundtrack? It's almost all MIDI, like PS1 MIDI. It's uh, I mean, the Sephiroth song, like One Wing and Angel. It has some choir voices and stuff. But like they've later put out CDs where they are full orchestras actually performing. Oh, but yeah. I don't think full orchestras made it onto the game. Yeah. Um, but yet it sounds really good. Like the, the music sounds really good. And I actually think on the whole, even if you leave out the CD space to have real CD recorded audio, PlayStation had better music than the 64 in terms of even like the non-record pre-recorded stuff. And so even if Square picked PlayStation because they needed the space for all these graphics and all these pre-rendered videos, they also made the right choice because I I do think most of the music on N64 sounds like hot garbage, <laughs> um, just technically, not compositionally. There's there's good composers working, and Mario's music is of course iconic and memorable. But like as a technical platform, the PlayStation just sounds so much better. And so we got to enjoy the fruits of that with Final Fantasy. Um, and yeah, the music is really good in this game and it's more, everything got, had to step up and be more cinematic and more in earlier eras, music was, could just be so bombastic and in your face all the time. And this game has more subtlety. It quiets down and yeah, I think it's really, really good music and it's still fun to listen to even when it's not a recorded orchestra, even the MIDI versions. Yeah. Yeah. While I was working the other day, I actually just went to youtube and just found like a random rip from the game right so the songs exactly as they sounded in the game not you know the london philharmonic doing their version right that's amazing but even just the way it sounded in the game is is enjoyable to have on and some of the songs uh i think they complement the visuals in the exact way you said, right? Is there, they're there for cinematic reasons, right? Aerith's tune is slower and sadder and kind of melancholy. And a lot of the visuals when you're with her also go along with that, right? There's, there's like a, you know, the composer and the camera are sort of working together to make sure you know how to feel. And when cloud is riding the motorcycle you have very different camera angles and very different music and when you're fighting sephiroth you have very different camera angles and very different music right it's like it's this this kind of important harmony that you get like a virtuous cycle right the the visuals are more spectacular because the music's happening and the music is more memorable because your brain is like oh yes when this part of the music is happening this thing was visually happening or narratively happening in the story mm-hmm. and so you you get like i don't what's the phrase like neurons that fire together wire together right so it's like oh i can (laughs) i can tell you exactly what was happening in the scene when i hear this part of the music like oh the you know the strings like sweep up and that's when the camera like sweeps across the monster and right it's Mm -hmm. the big whatever like it's it's you you could have attempted stuff like that on the nintendo 64 but not oh well (laughs) yeah and I love Zelda music, but the MIDI instruments of Ocarina of Time sounds so <laughs> cheesy and crappy to me, even though the music is great. 
Um, and so I, I like that even on MIDI, PlayStation still sounds very, it's very fun to listen to. The music has to do so much heavy lifting when you go cinematic. And, you know, I'm just impressed by the variety. You're in a CD little town, you have certain music, you have, you know, very sneaky Twin Peaks noir music when you're in <laughs> Shinra building, um, or you're just kind of snooping around different places. Um or, you know, there's there's a lot of variety here that's hitting a lot of different genres. You have, like, it's kind of the more metal, like, guitar sounds are in there, which was, you know, pretty new for the series. Maybe there's a term for this in, like, scene design. Like, if I was a movie person, I would know. But I really love when a game breaks from convention on the music while something familiar is happening mechanically. And the specific example of that in Final Fantasy VII, but JRPGs more broadly, is there's music playing right now, and then I get into a random encounter, but the music keeps playing, right? There's a, 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 a I can't remember exactly what just happened, but like a sad thing happens, and you go into a battle, and the sad music keeps playing. And there's a couple times where like you're trying to escape from a place, and the tense music goes into the battle instead of it switching to the battle theme, right? And there's there's something really thoughtful about not saying like oh well we switch to a battle we got to go into the battle music and it's like no th- this whole time is sad and even though there's like monsters or enemies or bad guys or whatever around that's that's actually not what the characters are focused on they're still sad or they're still trying to escape and that's the feeling and the way we're going to make sure that that feeling isn't disrupted is by having this continuity of music, even though mechanically you're going in and out of random encounters. And you could argue like, well, maybe don't have random encounters at that part, but it's like, (laughs) no, they need to be there. We chose to have them there or whatever, but you can keep the emotion consistent by having that musical through line. Like that's yeah, that, that little, you know, design choice and they have to build that into the engine, right? Like, okay, when you launch a battle here, don't switch to the battle music, right? So that that's like an intentional design choice. And I think it's, it's always worth at least experimenting with, like, how can we enforce an emotion by having this cinematic music, this scene music continue through other mechanical things where those would normally have their own music, right? On the overworld map, when you are on the ground, the it's not good. Like mostly it's like this sad, you're going to die. We're all going to die kind of music. <laughs> and, and then like when you go up into the high wind, like that's the vehicle that gets you to the boss. Like that's how you go fight Sephiroth and can like try to save the world. And so the high wind always has upbeat music, right? So there it's instead of like, Oh, but, but things are sad. It's like, yeah, but now we have the tools to go be successful. Right. So it's there. They, they decided to stick with that convention and say like, when you're in the high wind, you always have the high wind music because here you are empowered. Yeah. Well, and are you thinking of after Aerith dies, the boss battle there continues? Yes. Her musical that, theme. That's it. <laughs> yes. That's a, that's a Genova fight, isn't it? Yeah. One of like 85 Genova fights. And it's it's sort of a a story fight where we're like, okay, we're going to beat this fight no matter what. It's not like a challenge fight, but still <laughs> you have, yeah, you don't get the, the normal boss music. You get the continuing Aerith theme, which is already pretty somber um, in general. The last of her kind. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, and I, I think of other games that'll do something like that. Like if you're in the middle of escaping and you have a countdown timer that helps you remain connected to your escape if the music just flows through battles. Because um, you're, you're remembering the bigger context of I'm trying to get the hell out of here. Yeah, it, it's just that that through line to to me the like when I play a JRPG, you know, the I'll usually pick a character that I give my name to, but I'm not that character, right? It, like I'm I'm watching their story, I'm interacting with their story, but I don't believe that I'm them the way you would in like a Western RPG, right? Like in Oblivion, you are that character. In Final Fantasy you are watching the story of these characters play out and sometimes pressing circle, right? Like, and that's, and I'm okay with that. Like, I don't, I'm not complaining, but it, it's a different kind of mentality. And I think that through line in the music, like when Aerith's, you know, music is playing while you're fighting Genova, the reminder that you have there is like, their heart's not really in this. Like they're, this is, they're doing this because they don't want to die, but <laughs> this is not really the thing they would, they're mourning their friends, you know, assassination. They're not like here to defeat the monsters, right? Or when you're escaping, it's like we're defeating the monsters because we have to get away from here, not because we want to like purge the world of all monsters, right? <laughs> so like I I really, I have a much easier time as a player staying in the headspace of these characters that I'm not, right? I, they're not acting as me. I'm trying to act as them, and and that musical through line for me has always been like a way to make that easier, essentially. Like it, it's just a, a mm -hmm. big draw into the, the the scene. It helps me really inhabit <laughs> the character. You can method act in Final Fantasy VII. <laughs> That's right. Even when you're not playing the game, you want them to refer to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, I really do. Um, can I complain a little bit about some of the sound effects? Because yes. some of them are really... Um, screechy pitchy like fingernails on glass noisy like every time you cast a spell it makes that really high-pitched like beep, 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 beep. and there's yeah there's just a lot of sound effects that i don't know if it's a limitation of the playstation hardware i don't know if it was just a design choice and they were happy with it but there's just a lot of high scratchy every time the planet cries oh my god every time it's like <laughs> <laughs> this is not an ASMR game, it's, you're saying? I mean, most of the sound effects are fine, but there are a lot of places. And I mean, you hear magic a lot, right? So like to make that kind of a grating noise seems like a questionable choice. Did we really go through graphics and gameplay and not talk about the summon animation? <laughs> <laughs> hey, we can wait for mechanics. Let's keep talking about sound. But I just had to... That's funny because I actually... I, my, I have so many notes for this game that I actually skipped <laughs> over that, but I did have that in my notes. Yeah, um, it's kind of a, a, tro a trope of this game anyway. Um, yeah, the sound effects, I don't have a lot of notes. Like they, For the most part, I didn't think about them, which is maybe the most generous thing I could say is they, <laughs> they did their job. Like, yeah, I switched menu items and you gave me a little plink. Thank you. It helps me know that I moved one item down. <laughs> but that's not really... It's kind of like you did your job. Like I'm not, you don't get a trophy. Like, thanks. Um, and um, I didn't get as 
which is funny because I think I'm kind of misophoniac a little bit. The the word for when sounds like you're sound sensitive, like if someone's <laughs> smacking their lips while they're eating cereal, I'll be like, we have to turn some music on or do something because I cannot just sit here while this is happening. Or I could um, kill you. <laughs> yeah. Or yeah, I can stab you in the neck right now. Like, which <laughs> which thing do we want? Um, but yeah, there's a lot of like frequency sweeps up and down to like as the screen. You know, there's might there might be a little bit of an epilepsy warning that this game deserves too, because you know every time Cloud remembers anything, you get the PTSD flash in front of you. Ooh, and yeah, a lot of those moments have like a very jarring noise which at least there like it's a storytelling mechanic of his brain's kind of messed up so here we go he's glitching out and so like i get it aesthetically but yeah the the sound effects probably are a little grating sometimes most of the time i didn't think about them yeah and i i think the way you phrased it like you did your job you don't get a trophy that's (laughs) that's true for sound effects a lot of the time and the less required information they convey, the easier it is for them to turn in their C plus and be done with it. And <laughs> and that's not an insult, right? Like the music is audio that they obviously did not phone in, right? There's It's not that the sound effects are phoned in. It's that they're as good as they need to be and no better. But the places they chose screechy, scratchy noises, like I think you picked probably the best example. Every time it does the the static noise with the white flash when cloud has his PTSD flashbacks. Um, (laughs) That makes sense because it's like, Oh, I'm supposed to be feeling jarred and off balance. And I sure do. Right. So so like (laughs) thumbs up. But when I cast, you know, cure or something, maybe don't do a like scratch, 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 scratch noise. Like that's, that that one seems off base. There's a little bit more of the like, you know, if we joke about like needs more JPEG, like it's like a sound <laughs> version of that. Like it's just a little, it's like kind of wind chimey crystals kind of blowing in the wind, and <laughs> but bit crushed. So they're just kind of like scratchy, <laughs> annoying. Um, yeah, a lot of the magic has kind of that like jingly magical wind chime compressed to hell. <laughs> so before I... Uh let us segue out of audio. I have to ask, uh, as an honest to God musician, um, how many songs from final fantasy seven have you attempted to learn on an instrument? It's, <laughs> Cause there's gotta be at least one, right? Don't tell me you never tried to oh. learn any of this music. I, I the one of the first things I ever learned on piano was the prelude, which kind of has the heart yes. and soul chord progression <laughs> a little bit, um, like a drawn out, sad harp version of what in the movie Big he hops around <laughs> on. <laughs> um, but also the battle music, there's the little halfway through the loop of the battle music, it goes to that the best part of the song in my opinion it's a great bridge i definitely learned the hell out of that part of that song because i love i would i would purposely and it's the credit to the music i would string battles out longer at least when i was in the 90s when i was playing this game i would let battles go on longer because i wanted to hear that part of the song again and i didn't have an easy way to play the music otherwise i feel like a lot of PS1 games should have done their players the kindness of making all of their music accessible in a regular CD player because 
some PS1 games did that. And I think every Sega CD game did that. Like, yeah, please just let me play. I know you companies, you all think eventually you're going to release an OST and that people are going to pay 1995 for it, but you're not. And they're not. So please, I gave you $75 <laughs> for the game. Will you please just let me listen to the music? Do we, do we use this, this time between, uh, audio and controls to circle back to the uh the summon animations because i i think we're probably on the same page here yeah i mean we can work it into controls because it's when the game stops everything and takes all control away from you i think it's also the only time you ever uh can't interact in a battle where it actually gives you the little selector glove with the x flashing (laughs) over it it's like no but i want to target you know, Yuffie with a Phoenix down cause she died and it's like, oh, you gotta wait till the movie's over, buddy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How do you think that goes after the first two or three times? Like mechanically summons are a super valuable thing to have in your arsenal. But after you've seen that little animation cinematic for the 30th time, like, yeah, d- did you ever catch yourself like avoiding certain summons? Cause like Bahamut zero is really powerful and Holy crap, that takes forever. <laughs> Yeah, or Knights of the Round. (laughs) Well, that's, I mean, that one's its own meme at this point. How can they, it's it's indefensible that you can't skip the animation. Like, (laughs) I don't care, I don't care how new the graphics capabilities were that they got to show this much detail and tell entire stories in their (laughs) magic spells. Um, Yeah, that's insane. And I don't use summons when I play this game very much because I'm an impatient bastard and I just, I don't want to (laughs) wait. Like, sorry. Yeah. Now, um, I I ended up in a situation where I would start using summons and then sort of like look away. And it's like, (laughs) oh, this is is a good time to like scratch my nose or adjust my headphones or, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, oh, I want to take a sip of water, so I will cast the summon and then confidently put the so controller it's a feature. down. <laughs> well, I had to like, you know, hammer beat it into being a feature. Like when the Wii would show you that picture of like the open window with a curtain and be like, why don't you take a break from Wii bowling? <laughs> and you're like, how about I keep bowling? Piece of crap. Yeah, I'm actually uh, pretty okay with the bowling I'm doing right now. Thanks. <laughs> I can't remember which game they finally let you skip him. Was it right with eight or you don't? You don't I, I, w- eight, I would not really. know what they let you do in eight. <laughs> um, eventually they figured out people don't want to sit through these every single freaking time. So that's dumb. It's dumb. I don't know what else to say about it. It's really dumb. Yeah. No, I, I like your choice of indefensible. <laughs> like, there's nothing you can say that would make me think this was the correct design choice, which actually leads me to, uh, kind of a broad theme for my notes and mechanics, which is I'm surprised how much notes I ended up with for mechanics, because if I just described a JRPG to someone who's not familiar with the genre, be like, Oh, there's real time battle or there's, you know, uh, turn-based battles and you got spells and you got attacks and some special abilities, but like, it's not that complicated. And then the more I played the game, I was like, there's almost an oppressive amount of stuff going on and final fantasy 7 has got to be the moment that square enix well square at the time was able to really open the doors to ridiculous mini games and gimmicks and yeah. <laughs> and 
man, there's a lot of mini games and gimmicks and there's a lot of like needless you're walking from point A to point B and you have to like jump over little chasms, but like you can't fall, right? Like it's not a platformer. It's just cinematically your character jumps over like a little opening or jumps off of a little ledge or climbs up a little, you know, ladder or whatever. And the mini games and the gimmicks are so beloved in this game by the designers that they created the entire otherwise totally pointless area of the golden saucer, which is, you know, like a casino where you can go and replay the gimmicky mini games. And a lot of maybe damn near every final fantasy has some sort of silly, like, Oh, you press a to, you know, do whatever press, you know, as fast as you can to do this thing faster than the computer does it. Or there's a lot of that throughout, but Man, Final Fantasy VII is where they were able to just say, we can make you, you have so many buttons on the <laughs> controller and things can happen in three dimensions. Like we can do all sorts of insane gimmicks. So the ones that I specifically took note of is they make you uh, play a Simon Says game to march in a military parade while you're in disguise. Yeah, uh, There's Chocobo catching, breeding, and racing. There's snowboarding. There's the squats thing. There's a tower <laughs> defense game shoved into this game that already has combat. <laughs> uh, there's the submarine battle, which is separate from how you just drive the submarine. So there's two entire interfaces for the submarine. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I, I mean, these things aren't bad, but like this is Final Fantasy seven is where they were able to codify we want to have other little things inside our fantasy movie, like our yeah. our movie about heroes defeating monsters and you press circle to select spells. We're also going to have all these other like little ridiculous gimmicks and that's just a thing we're going to do and you need to make your peace with it. And like, this is the game when I, I would say it went from being a silly side thing in Final Fantasies to being a staple of Final Fantasies. Yeah. Yeah, because I can think like in Chrono Trigger, you have like the one like hover bike race. And there's some other like you can play the robot. There's the carnival games at the beginning, but it's nowhere near the scale and scope of game systems they're playing with for one off situation. Like we built a whole snowboarding thing and you do it once in the story, but you can also do it here like in the Golden Saucer or whenever. It's kind of a, a buffet. It's an overflow. It's our game designers wanted to play and we created a game big enough to have that as part of the game. And, you know, this is an era where we're coming out of like games were way more like I do one thing and I only do one thing at all. <laughs> and I am either good at that thing or not. And this game's like, we do everything. And yeah, we kind of <laughs> suck at some of it, but we don't care. We did more than you asked for. And here it all is. It's impressive, but it's also, it's easy to come back and nitpick and be like, this mini game is pointless. Why is it here? It's dumb. You should have cut it. Yeah. I mean, especially like the ones that are there to build upon things in the world like chocobo breeding and racing like final fantasies have had chocobos going way back right and the idea and of them being like a feature of the world and it's like oh this guy's job is that he runs a chocobo stable because that is a job that someone in this universe would conceivably have right so it it makes the world feel like deeper and more realistic but 
like the submarine thing like <laughs> why this the snowboarding thing is like cute and actually kind of fun but why like i didn't i didn't believe the world of final fantasy 7 was more realistic because children had invented sliding down a hill on a flat piece of wood like <laughs> I can believe that every universe that has ever existed includes the feature of children inventing sledding. Like that's, that doesn't make the world feel more, but like, Oh my God, I've been sledding. I can totally <laughs> envision myself in this world. Right. And I, I actually like the snowboarding mini game. It's kind of fun, even though it's dumb as hell, but it, it doesn't really add anything to the universe the way like Chocobo breeding does, even though that is a frustrating nightmarish slog, but like it at least is believable, right? In in a lot of the later Final Fantasies, there's usually like the game du jour, right? Like, the, oh, this is the game that's popular in this world. And it also features prominently in the story for whatever dumb reason. And Chocobo racing is kind of that in Final Fantasy VII, I guess, because that, yeah, like, there's so many card games in the other ones. A lot of card games. A lot of card games. And some of them are pretty fun, but still, <laughs> a lot of card games. Um, yeah, I, I have a blog post I wrote a million years ago called Crafting Systems Suck, <laughs> which is my diatribe at saying, like, most of the time, even in Minecraft, I'm not a big fan of crafting in that game. But I haven't really been a Minecraft player for like eight years, so I have no valid opinion on that game anymore. But, I think it still includes uh, crafting. I feel the same about mini games a lot of times. Like when I'm in Bioshock and you have to play a mini game to hack the vending machine, that's interesting once. <laughs> and then the 15th time, I'm like, I, I am glad to pay to get past this because I don't. <laughs> enjoy as a game for its own sake i don't enjoy this so i don't want to do this is ever that, again is that one a uh like a skinned version of like plumber's challenge or whatever because i feel like a lot is of hacking water's game, filling the pipes yeah. Yeah. yeah i feel like a lot of mini games are that old arcade game just reskinned with like electricity <laughs> or with you know toxicity or whatever yeah, it's like yeah, no. There's a reason people aren't lining up to buy that game. It's because we don't really want to play that game anymore. And if we do, we don't want to play it in the middle of playing this other game. I realize I probably have more extreme views than a lot of gamers that don't mind dabbling in these silly mini games as much. But I, I'm so much less patient with them than I used to be. I, I like it if it, like the Chocobo Racing if it thematically ties in really deeply with something narrative or something gameplay wise. Um, but unless the, like even in a game with a crafting system, if the way I craft it gives me some really unique result that means something to me, that's really cool. I might invest in that kind of thing. Just like I do spend time creating a character with a character builder. But if it's just like, I, I set up hoops, jump through the hoops, idiot. Like, <laughs> I don't I don't enjoy that when it feels arbitrary or feels like we just wanted to throw some confetti in the air. <laughs> <laughs> Dance monkey. Well, in, in like in Final Fantasy 7, there is a story time when you have to do the chocobo racing cuz that's how you like buy your way out of hell, right? And that's w whatever, <laughs> but like it's it's a really easy race, right? They they introduce you to the mechanic and then they're like, "Hey, there's a whole universe over here. If you want to like go and gamble and 
train up chocobos and then get special chocobos. And if you go through all that, you can get access to some crazy stuff that there's no other way to access. None of it's required to beat the game. None of it is like obnoxiously dangled in your face of like, Oh, if only you'd done more chocobo racing, then you'd be able yeah. to get this incredible thing, right? Like these, it, it's a deep system that is completely ignorable. And I appreciate that in uh, lightning returns, final fantasy 13 dash three, for some insane reason, there's a magic chocobo and you have to save its life and it will only take food that you give it. Like it won't like let the chocobo doctor feed it. And the second, cause I think I actually played this on stream. So I might have evidence of this somewhere in my Twitch archive, but the second I got to that scene and the doctor's like, he'll only take food from you. I was like, but why do I have to go gather the food? You gather it and then I will feed him. I'm trying to save the world. Like this is not a proper distribution of labor. I was going to say, is that what Captain Marvel had to do that she couldn't attack Thanos? And that's basically how it feels, right? It's just like, Oh, (laughs) thank you for saving the universe hero of time. Can you please go do this obnoxious fetch quest? And it's like, no, I can't like, why are you charging money for this item? Like I am here to, in fact, in this game, and I've seen this in, 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 sorry, in Lightning Returns and in a few other JRPGs, I've literally seen dialogue where characters are like, oh, hey, I know you're trying to save us from, you know, ultimate doom, but you gotta run a business. And it's like, <laughs> no, that's not funny. Like, give, give a better story reason that they're not just giving me stuff for free, right? Like in final fantasy seven, the shop owners don't know you're trying to save the world. They don't know who the hell you are because that's not how the narrative is written. But in a lot of JRPGs and RPGs in general, like they know you're the hero. They know, they know you're on a fantastical journey to save everyone from certain doom. Like just give me a damn potion. So I think um, connecting back to your, one of your earlier points that, most of the weird stuff in this game is optional and a lot of it can lead to really good or interesting rewards. And so I think it strikes a really good balance of having extra stuff in the game. If you don't care about the story and you want to dive deep into something else, there's other stuff there. Or if you're just, you're a min-maxer, you really want to get all the best weapons, you want to find all the unique materia and summons, like they like most of the good Final Fantasies, they pack that stuff and they don't force you to do more of it. Like one of my go-to examples for a game that forces you to play with its mechanic. Well, I just thought of another one. Well, I was going to (laughs) say Wind Waker before they fixed it with the remake, the get all the Triforce pieces by sailing everywhere for a million hours (laughs) sucks. And I I know there's like that's a Zen thing in that game. You just sail and it's fun and it's lighthearted and just enjoy it. But no, <laughs> <laughs> I refuse to be lighthearted and enjoy things. I want the double speed sail and shut up. Um, but <laughs> I when I was thinking of that, I actually thought of the mostly forgotten DS game where you're on trains, and that's a uh, let's not talk about that one. But <laughs> the the sequel to Phantom Hourglass. There's like a train, oh, spirit yeah. train or whatever. I always forget that one exists because it's why. <laughs> and I've said many times, the reason I play Zelda's is to go through puzzle dungeon. That's why Portal is one of the best Zelda games. Um, <laughs> Man, Gauntlet Throne. Yeah. 
Um, anyway, this game makes it mostly optional, and there's mostly stretch goal. Like, you can get some of these things that you want, and you can ignore the other ones. So it's hard to get too angry about the mini game you don't enjoy, because you mostly can pretend it doesn't exist. Well, they're mostly where you have to do them in the story. It's a tiny, super easy to do exposure to it as their way of saying, hey, this thing also exists. Right. And then you Mm -hmm. you can go right back to ignoring it. So it's offered up as an option on the menu without them being like, oh, no, you should really try the Chocobo racing. That's how you'll get the best summon. And it's like, no, but I I don't really care about that. And it's like, oh, no, I I think you do. I think you want to breed some Chocobo, right? Like (laughs) they don't do that. And so even though I do think it's a little weird that there's so many gimmicks, they I think you're absolutely right. They strike an incredible balance of being like, there's a ton of gimmicks feel free to ignore them all. (laughs) And speaking of things that are optional, I need to hear your thoughts about magic in this game, because one of the things that I cherish about Final Fantasy American two Japanese four is that people have classes and you have a, you have a party of five, right? A huge party by modern JRPG standards. And they have like roles and responsibilities. You have a white mage that does white mage stuff. You have a black mage that does black mage stuff, right? Like, and they, they're not good at the other things if they can do those things at all. And so you end up having to like, if your white mage dies, that's a problem. Cause you now no one else can do white mage stuff. Right. And in uh, later final fantasies, they really kind of decided not to do that. Like at all. And it started with three slash six, where they said, anyone can use magic, but certain people are way better at it than others. So if you want to take all of your fighters and teach them all of the magic, you can do that, but you'll get sort of a weirdly lopsided party where it's like they're really good at one thing and they kind of suck at this other thing. And so you can skill them up, but like, you're not really incentivized to do that in Final Fantasy seven. And from seven on, because they decided like three's a fine number. (laughs) You have these super small parties where everyone has to be good at multiple things because you only have three people in your party. And the problem that that leads to for me is no one can be a full-time mage in a party of three. And so what you end up with is, these various systems to shove magic into everyone in the party. And in Final Fantasy seven, they do that through materia, which is interesting because the Esper system in six, you learned the spells. The Esper didn't learn the spells. The the materia system is exactly the opposite. The materia is powerful. You are not powerful. And so if you take like a fully powered up, you know, like, you know, fire material or, 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 um, re crap recover. Shoot. What is the name of the cure material? It's got like a weird name. It's not just called cure. No, it teaches you those spells, but that's not the name of the material. Oh crap. I don't remember. Yeah, exactly. Cause they have like weird names. Anyway, the cure restore. restore. Thank you. I wanted to say revive and I knew that wasn't it. The restore material, which also teaches you regen, the greatest spell is um, <laughs> like once that materia is powered up, you can give that to anyone and they now instantly have all of those spells. 
But if you take that material away from them, they lose all of those abilities, right? So it's basically the opposite of the way they did it in six. But that also means at any moment, you can just turn any middling character into this psychotic powerhouse by giving them super powered materia and super powered stat boosting materia. And and I, yeah. I don't, I'm, I'm super conflicted about this because I really like having party members who are like dedicated to a role and having to balance a party. And from Final Fantasy seven onwards, that's not a thing you have to do anymore. Everybody sort of serves the same purpose. Yeah. And it's more like which character wallpaper do I want painted in front of me while I do the thing? It really does feel like that. It feels like you're choosing characters based on the characters, right? Like their, their contribution to the, the narrative, not on their contribution mechanically. And I could, I could hear an argument for that, but just write <laughs> characters who are mechanically and narratively interesting and yeah and maybe try that <laughs> it it seems clear to me that since every single just about every single final fantasy game almost like they don't always reinvent the wheel but they play endlessly with all of these mechanics how do you acquire new abilities do you have a lot of equipment choices or do you have almost none in this game there's only three slots for your equipment um, and it's like materia is the arena of customizing way more than stuff. And so on the one hand, I'm happy. I don't, I'm not like managing seven pieces of gear that all have slots. Cause that might get really confusing, but at the same time, it, it, like, I think at the time I was sad that I didn't have all these interesting weapons and armor pieces to equip, which I liked about four and six, or I enjoy in tactics, which is one of the most enjoyable systems I've ever played. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't think I, I love the system here. I don't, I mean, I think it's, it's deep and they obviously put a lot of thought into it. It's not just, Hey, learn magic, put materia in. It's like, there's those stat things you're talking about. There's, there's trade-offs to a lot of the material where they, they take out another stat while they boost one. Um, there's a lot of this stuff going on and there's is level boost like a thing too. Like you go up to level while you're holding a certain materia or is that not? Part uh, of there's definitely stat boost. I don't remember a level boost, but there's, there's like HP up. That might and, be in six, actually. Yeah, actually, you might be right. Anyway, <laughs> it's such a thing that there is no single Final Fantasy system, even though there's obviously tropes. There's spells you see through, you know, dozens of the games. There's things that recur or, or happen similarly. But at the same time, they're always playing with these systems. And I think sometimes, like, the biggest thing I could... Like, I enjoy Final Fantasy VIII. I know I'm a crazy person. You are. <laughs> but I I also see that asking you to sit and grind and draw magic out of things for three hours before the game continues <laughs> is not, so, it's not an ask most gamers feel like dealing with. Well, and I think you, you said something that I, I should be really explicit about just to be clear, which is I personally mourn the loss of having to negotiate a party of people who are good at one thing and okay at one other thing and then suck at everything else and like balancing those chess pieces. But the materia system is, as you said, really well thought out. It's deep, it's flexible, but if you don't want to deal with any of that, you can just slap 
generic like okay this person has healing materia that person has elemental spells and this person is my fighter like you can do that but if you want to really dive into it and say like okay these materia lower these stats but raise these stats and i want this person to focus on this because they have this attack or this you know they have a proclivity for magic or whatever or i'm going to give this person all of the mind sources and magic sources so that they're my spell caster right like you can you can min-max people in a way that some later Final Fantasies, especially the most recent ones, were like, nope, everyone is interchangeable. Like Final Fantasy VII <laughs> still very much allows you to say, this person is the best fighter, this person is like kind of balanced, and this person is my spellcaster. But if you really push the system to its limits, you can make everyone kind of great at everything. And and really what becomes your limiting factor is the number of materia you can hold. And then they even found a way to let you push that boundary <laughs> because there are some secret materia you can unlock that are master materia that give you all of the abilities of that color's materia. Yeah. <laughs> So if you really want to push this system, you can have a party of super deities who are all great at everything. But I think that's a that's like a sign of a well-balanced system is you have to squeeze hard to get that juice out. Well, and I think like the analogy I was just thinking of is to your point about camera angles, like you enjoy when some game, when there is a director's hand sometimes saying, hey, I'm showing you something Not if this isn't in your control right now. And I'm hearing a little bit of a version of that about the characters. Like, hey, I created characters that are certain. <laughs> they aren't just names and an appearance. Like, they don't just have an avatar. Like, they're, um, they actually serve a purpose with what they're capable of. And versus the material, you might argue, like, yeah, it's deep, but so is a bucket of Lego blocks. <laughs> Make something. Like, it's like, but I thought I was going to do a play with characters you made but you just handed me a bucket of lego blocks and yeah you're right i can make almost anything out of this but that wasn't the game maybe you prefer yeah it's i i feel like it it detracts a little bit from some of your narrative freedom so like a, a great example is in final fantasy 4 there are scripted sequences where characters cast spells and that is part of the scripted sequence and from Final Fantasy VII onward, that would make no sense. You could, you could never have a scripted sequence or now, you know, a cutscene where a character casts a spell because there's no guarantee that they can cast that spell, right? Like, or that they do have that ability. It just it would make no damn sense. And like in Final Fantasy IV, there's like a couple dramatic scenes where like spellcasters are like trying to do something and they can't, right? And it's like super sad and some people die and like, but th those scenes wouldn't make any sense if like Kane or Cecil, Cecil, whatever, like <laughs> if they were like, oh, uh, magic then just happened, right? Whereas in Final Fantasy VII, any character in any cutscene could cast any spell and therefore it's pointless. So no one ever does that ever because it would be pointless. They can only do mm. the things that are unique to them in cutscenes, right? Like uh, when they're chasing Barrett and Doran, the guy who goes insane, who also gets a gun arm. Uh, yeah. Is it Doran? It's, I think it's something with a D, but like in that cutscene, they're chasing Barrett and that guy and, um, 
that's when he, you know, he gets shot in the, the arm and that's when he loses his arm and gets the gun crafted on. Right. So that's a thing that's unique to him as a character, but you can't do anything material. Dine. Dine. Thank you. But you, you can't do anything material related. So summons can never show up in a, a narrative cutscene. You know, basic spells of any kind can never show up in a narrative cutscene. And like, that's, I don't, it's not a bad thing. It's just Final Fantasy four is like where I cut my teeth. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so like, that's, it's very D and D like this person's good at this thing They're because they're not good at this other thing. Right. This person's good at the other thing because they're not good at this thing. And later Final Fantasies just really gave that up. That is completely separate from the fact that the materia system is really well designed, really approachable and difficult to screw up for someone who doesn't want to go in deep, but still there's a lot of depth for someone who's like, Ooh, this is a huge bucket of Legos. I'm going to build something amazing. Right? So that's, that's not an easy task, but I, there is the part of me that mourns the the narrative function that you give up. Should we talk about the, uh, awkward turn for very mature themes present in final fantasy seven and then forward into future final fantasies? Because, Uh, there's a guy who's super abusive. There's a lot of cursing. There's uh, dead parents. And like, that's a feature like that. Marlene's mother is gone. Um, Let's see what else. Uh, um, Tifa exists at all. Like, (laughs) right. And she's like a woman character. Like there's never been in maybe any final fantasy ever um, before this time. Um, Uh, the Shinra corporation, like the entire overarching story of the game is this is what happened when capitalism runs amok, right? Like <laughs> yeah. it's, I, I realized on this replay, like the story of this game is basically a Miyazaki film. Yeah. It's science and technology destroying nature and nature in a magical, you know, kind of surreal sort of way coming to fight back against science and technology gone amok, which I'm totally fine with because I I'm sort of on the Miyazaki side of that belief spectrum. But like the, the, this is not even a cursory reading of the story and these characters and their interactions with each other. This is not a simple game, even with the terrible translation on the original discs. This is not a very simple, happy go lucky. Let's go stop the big bad guy. Like there are some, deep themes here and nowhere is that better personified than when the gang is captured by the Shinra corporation, the way that they are going to prevent other people from trying to rise up against the Shinra corporation, right? Remember, this is not a government. (laughs) This is a private business entity is that they are going to execute you in a gas chamber on live television (laughs) and then you have to escape from the gas chamber and then you have a bitch slap fest fight thing on top of a giant gun and it's super weird but (laughs) like i'm sure that as a 12 year old it was not impressed upon me that a feature of this game is a public execution to quell future dissent (laughs) that's that is dark that's really heavy 
Another reason Square didn't make this game for a Nintendo system is I don't think at the time Nintendo would have been very happy with that content <laughs> on a game because Nintendo has famously tried to curate a lot more of what get now it's been released on a Nintendo platform now so obviously they've changed a little <laughs> the world has changed enough around them that they're like okay fine but yeah this game has very mature content and I think it was the teen rating when it came out but those themes are very mature. There's some of the visuals, you know, the blood streaks through the floor of Shinra. Like, it's a totally different level than any previous Final Fantasy game had reached for. I don't know if I'm saying anything interesting at all about this other than, yeah, man. <laughs> but <laughs> but I mean, I, I like I like the level of nuance, right? Like, Sephiroth is insane, and he's trying to do something horrible, but you kind of get his motives, right? He's like, everyone on this planet sucks. And so none of you deserve to live. End of story. And he's wrong to think that, but like his motives are not like, I'll destroy the world. Like he has a reason he wants to destroy the world. And he has a, a weird rationale about why he thinks he deserves a place in charge of the world or um, he's some mistaken beliefs about his ancestry, like all this <laughs> stuff is part of it. Um, and kind of the, you know, the I'm a monster created in a lab kind of like rebellion going on. And some of you could find some great, you know, film analogs to some of these themes. But yeah, the point is the game is reaching for that level. Kefka in Final Fantasy VI is like, I'm just crazy. <laughs> but he's so good. <laughs> oh, I love Kefka. And he's better than most villains of that era, too. But, um, you know, in Final Fantasy IV, it's like, well, I'm Zeromus. I just, I'm just the thing you have to slay at the end. And I, I'm not really very interesting other than I'm that. From the moon. <laughs> There's a the backstory of Genova and the the planet, um, even as kind of hippie as it gets about like the planet's gonna heal itself, man. <laughs> um, the the Genova being an alien and and some of that is, is very interesting stuff. So I like it. <laughs> it's good lore. I thought it was good. Now I <laughs> I like that uh, they do for all the things they do mechanically to allow the characters to be hot swappable. Um, they do a lot narratively in the character building to make you as a player possibly align with different characters. I mean, if all you care about is mechanics, there are certain characters that are obviously preferable to others just because of their abilities or their natural stats or whatever. But if you really identify with like Barrett's, you know, story as like a single father and like how he wants to protect the planet, but he's sort of going about it in a terrible way. Like that's like, that might make you want to have him in your party because then you get to see his dialogue and how he reacts to stuff as you progress through the story. Right. If you have Tifa or Yuffie or Vincent or, you know, any sit, anybody like their presence is shown through dialogue because they say different things and the scenes play out basically identically, but with their like flavor, you know, kind of added in their, their spice brought to the stew. And I pretty much always end up choosing the same characters anyway, because I like the way they behave mechanically, but I do appreciate them making you wonder like, Oh, what would the scene have been like if I had so-and-so instead of such and such? And that's, 
that gives you some replay value. It makes the world feel more realistic because it's not like, Oh, whoever's the third member of my party always says the same sentence here, right? Like cloud is your through line. He always behaves the same way. And then the other characters, you know, contribute something that's believable for their character. And speaking of Barrett, I would be remiss talking about mature themes. If I didn't point out that, the first thing you do in the game is blow up a Mako reactor, which is essentially interchangeable with a nuclear reactor or an oil fire plant. <laughs> yeah. Like that's what it's supposed to be. And it's kind of both actually, because it's sucking the thing up out of the earth, but then it behaves sort of more like a nuclear reactor. But uh, late in disc two, when you're on the high wind, Barrett's, you know, like, ah, effity FF, this is all F and we need to protect the F and planet. And Kate Seth just kind of, you know, because you know he's like a puppet for a long time at this point. Spoilers. He like hops over and he's like, hey, um, how many people do you think died when you blew up those reactors? Because <laughs> if we go and do what you're you're saying we should do, way more people are going to die than that. And that was already a ton of people that died. So maybe get off your goddamn high horse. Right. And like, I love that that plays out because in the beginning, it's very black and white. Shinra's bad. You're the good guys. Even though you're obviously terrorists, you're eco terrorists. So it's okay. Right. And, (laughs) and they, they let you go through a non-trivial amount of the game, sort of believing that lie. And then in case you haven't come around to the conclusion that the world is more complicated than that on your own, they do finally have a character like slap you in the face and be like, every time you defend the planet, human beings are dying. Like you, your method of saving the planet has involved killing people. So maybe you're not as high and mighty as you thought. This is a harder problem than you think. Cause what's what balance of death (laughs) is more ethical in your mind? How many lives gun arm man? But I, I like that. And, and that's not, that's not narrative depth that they really got into in the earlier Final Fantasies that I remember. Um, a, there's some nuance in six, but not nearly to this level. And and that I think is a trajectory that they, they continued to increase. Like later Final Fantasies had like more and more narrative nuance and the stories weren't always good, but like they, they were trying to make them deeper. And I think that was the right direction to go. And like a lot of other things, Final Fantasy VII was an inflection point for that. Absolutely. So the last uh, mechanical thing I really wanted to talk to you about is uh, this is a Final Fantasy where levels matter. Like if you're supposed to be level 35 when you fight this boss and you're only level 30, the boss will be way harder, right? Like there's running in circles and grinding up your levels is a necessary thing. If you have been running from fights or just having bad luck and not getting into a lot of random encounters or good luck, depending on how you think about it, like levels super duper matter in this game. And Mm -hmm. uh, I can dovetail that with when you get later limit breaks for some godforsaken reason, you have to go into the menu and select and I forgot that. <laughs> so I actually played through the entire game without ever changing anyone's oh, limit man. break level like an idiot. But like, that's kind of a testament to how important character levels are because I just had powerful enough characters that I was able to bash my head against problems until the problem went away. Like that, I mean, you, yeah. you, 
you made it most of the way through the game on this particular playthrough. Like, do you remember what level your party was at? No, I don't. Uh, I'd have to go look and fire up the save. But <laughs> um, that's leveling up in RPGs is, you know, a, a gripe as old as time um, that different people have for different parts of games. For me, the gripe is for some reason, I don't mind drawing magic in Final Fantasy VIII, but most people hate that. <laughs> and so it's sort of like some of it is subjective, but it's also, you know, as a game mechanic, level grinding is, you know, it's either horrible or it's rewarding someone putting in time and effort. And it's like, you could see the same grinding as, oh, I'm being rewarded for putting in my time and getting stronger. And someone else is like, I don't care about this. Can I just continue the game? Why are you making me jump through this hurdle? (laughs) And I think any any game of this genre has to negotiate that somehow um, deciding where that line is, you know, is it fun to make a boss really hard so that you feel a sense of accomplishment when you beat it? On the other hand, if your only way of beating it is uh, I'm just going to sit here and kill these random creatures near me for five hours. And now I beat the boss. Maybe that accomplishment doesn't feel that great. (laughs) And so, you know, that's a game design question that I think, you know, that could be a whole can of worms, but you know, I don't feel like I had to sit and grind very much in this game. Maybe occasionally a fight would be kind of difficult, but it didn't feel like at every single, the game was just ratcheting it way up. It's not, you know, Dark Souls or something. You know, mostly I would say I felt like I naturally was the right level for where I needed to be, which is what I expect. I expect the game to more or less keep me on track. And then if I want to grind to lower the difficulty, that's a tool I have. But I expect the game to not require grinding if it has been properly balanced. Like that that's my feeling is proper balance means grinding is a thing I can do optionally, not a thing I am required to do to play the game at all. The one time that I had to grind, which I don't think was the game's fault, I think I had just been rushing a little bit and not really exploring very much is um the uh the dragon and the death wall thing the living wall in the temple of the agents i just somehow ended up there not really prepared for that area like i was probably a solid five levels below like when i picked 30 and 35 those are not random numbers (laughs) that's i somehow made it into that area level 30 and i really needed to be level 35 and as soon as i was i was able to defeat those bosses properly and it was fine but I, I, I don't, I never want to play a game where grinding is required, but I think it's, if you're going to have grinding be a tool, levels need to matter, right? Because yeah, grinding is even more obnoxious when it's like, oh, I'm not trying to make my characters more powerful by fighting monsters. I need to like level up the materia or I need to, you know, I need to grind for this one item that makes this boss tolerably difficult, but without it, it's super hard. And I just have had bad luck. Like that kind of grinding to me is indefensible. Level grinding is like, well, a a core feature of the game is the level of your characters. And so that's how you can like ratchet the difficulty up and down is like by being higher or lower level for any given circumstance. And I feel like a lot of modern JRPGs have started to drift away from 
levels mattering where it's like, oh, my party's level 45. And it's like, that doesn't matter. Your equipment matters or your, your relic loadout matters or, you know, your whatever, mm-hmm. like your skill tree matters. But like the levels kind of are just an artifact, like scores in the top, you know, corner of the screen. But in Final Fantasy seven levels still matter. And it's like, yeah, if you're going to have character levels, they should probably matter. Like if my stats are going to go up, even though some of the stats are confusing and I don't know what the hell they do. Like (laughs) still, I would like those numbers changing to be meaningful. Otherwise just remove them entirely. And they're still meaningful here, but that, that was going out of vogue not long after this time. Yeah, for sure. I think one of the most famous examples of weird broken leveling is some of those early Bethesda, like oblivion, Mm -hmm. um, where you would level up quickly thinking you might have had an old mindset of like, yeah, I'm going to grind so I'm stronger. And they're like, just kidding. You know, all boats rise with the tide of your level <laughs> and your gear didn't. And so and your crafting didn't. So get ready to die a lot because everyone's <laughs> stronger. And it is weird to put in time at the gym and then the whole world has bigger muscles. You're like, what? <laughs> That was an amazing way to describe that. Especially, I've noticed a lot of modern uh, JRPGs, random encounters scale with you, but story stuff doesn't. I mean, even Final Fantasy Tactics did this because that's the only way to get more powerful. But it's 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 weird when you're like, oh, this random slime is like level 85. <laughs> but then when you go to do a story battle, they're like level 20 because you're supposed to be level 20. Dead in one hit. And he's like the commander of slimes and he's weaker than all of them. <laughs> yeah, that is, that's a tough thing mechanically and narratively to juggle. Because when you when your level and your stats and the enemy's levels and the enemy stats and how many HPs they have, when all that information is accessible you're aware that scaling is happening, right? If that information is inaccessible to the player, then you can scale in ways that are, will change the game feel without it being so obvious. Like even, you know, because I did finish the game on this playthrough, Sephiroth actually scales depending on certain milestones. So it's like, if you've done a and B and C he'll have this many hit points, but if you've only done a and B he'll have this many hit points. If you haven't done any of those things, he has the least amount of hit points, right? So he is scaling a little bit with the party to try and make the final battle more like climactic, Mm -hmm. right? But the rest of the game doesn't scale at all. So you could, reasonably get there and if you've just barely crossed those thresholds you're fighting the hardest version of sephiroth even though you barely qualify for it whereas if you had been like (laughs) one level lower you would get this dramatically easier because i think there's three or four like milestones for like how many hit points he has but it's yeah it's weird that they chose the very last moment to be like scaling is a thing on the whole, it didn't bother me in this game, the, the level scaling. I, I do like that levels mean something, but and it's also like other than the little like, hey, you went up a level, it's not like in the old Dragon Warrior games, it'd be like you have this many more HP, you have this many more MP, like here's all the stuff you got in this new bag of goodies from going up a level. And this game's more like, yeah, you did one. Great. <laughs> it's your 37th birthday. No one cares anymore. Like. <laughs> It's kind of that a little bit, but oh, as of this recording, it is two days till my birthday <laughs> oh, right. and no one can have a virtual happy hour. <laughs> oh, I'm old now. Nobody cares. 
<laughs> we all know it's true. Um, so I'm out of, uh, I mean, there's a bajillion more things we could discuss, especially because we've done a shockingly good job of not going in deep on some of the weird story elements. Um, but there are a couple of uh, funny things I just wanted to make sure I mentioned. Um, and to continue with the theme of mechanics uh, and how those can impact the narrative, uh, I've realized replaying this game that I don't like disposable vehicles, and I think they're a stupid feature <laughs> of JRPGs. It's like, here's the boat you only ride once. Here's the stupid Land Rover thing that is to get across this single obstacle, and then you never use it again. Right. Like, and Final Fantasies have been doing this for ages. This goes back to the first, yeah. Final, literally, Final Fantasy one. You get a canoe, right? And you use it to cross like two rivers, and that's it. And like, it's just, it makes the world feel more alive that like there is a variety of vehicles because that is a thing that exists in the real world. But maybe don't make them quite so trivial or do what Final Fantasy VII actually already does, which is different kinds of chocobos, right? Because then all travel problems in this universe are solved by chocobos, right? This one can cross rivers. That one can go over mountains. You know, this one can go across the ocean and all terrain. Like then that explains why the chocobo economy is so important because it is also their only mode of transportation. But to say, oh, this one idiot has access to this Land Rover, which apparently has magic unlimited fuel because nowhere else in society <laughs> has vehicles on the entire planet, right? So it's it's just like, I really don't... I understand what I think they're trying to accomplish in world building, and I think it's dumb and the wrong way to do it, and I hate it, and like every Final Fantasy <laughs> does it, and I think it sucks. Yeah, it's our, like, where's the infrastructure that this vehicle exists with? It's like people that want to, you know, they answer the time travel question with, I take my iPhone back in time. It's like, but there's no cell network. So what are you going to do with it? <laughs> yeah. And once the battery's dead, it's now dead forever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you just have a black model. <laughs> so does this game hold are we ready for that question oh i, I do have, have more? one last uh ridiculous thing did you do any silly names for your characters because i'm actually kind of proud of some of the ones i did and i want to share them i did not so take the floor Yay. what did you do um, so i renamed uh red 13 to red 20 xx which i never use him but every time he was like in a cutscene and his name came up i was like i'm clever that's funny <laughs> I renamed Eris to Aerith because it's supposed to be Aerith. And that was another one where I was just like, ha ha, take that translators who speak way more <laughs> languages than I do. Um, I renamed Barrett to George because I was like, that's just funny. Uh, and uh, Kate Sith became Sith Lord, which considering that he's like a crazy puppet controlled by someone who works for Shinra and, like he's sort of a bad guy, but sort of a good guy. Cause he kind of feels guilty about what Shinra's doing. I was like, this is, I'm actually sort of okay with this name. So this is like, it sucked a lot of the gravitas out of certain scenes that these characters had these sort of gimmicky, funny names, but they were, Oh, and I renamed Yufa, uh, UV to Ninja because that is her only character trait. She, <laughs> she, she has no other defining character traits. So 
she was just called ninja which honestly changed no one's dialogue in any measurable way because that's <laughs> any she's an optional character so anytime anyone refers to her they're talking about her ninja-ness and it's just like yep this is she's a cardboard cutout who is <laughs> yep. useful mechanically but not really very interesting narratively now now we can segue into that final question i think you can enjoy this game even without nostalgia goggles on the paper cuts are pretty minor. Yeah, it's not going to... If someone has no nostalgic basis for the visuals, they might be turned off a little by the blockiness and the low res and all that. But as a game, it still functions very well. I think the story is interesting. I think it's a pretty good game. <laughs> I liked it. Um, I'm I'm actually... I'm with you. I said no nostalgic goggles required. Uh, there's a tiny asterisk in that if someone was going to play this and they never played it before, I would say play any of the re-release versions that use the PC higher resolution textures because it's not such an HD re-release that it dramatically, you're like, oh my God, this was like a PS3 game, right? Like it's it's nothing like that. Um, but it does just make the visual experience like nicer, right? It just, everything yeah. just looks a little smoother. The textures have gradients instead of grainy nightmares. Like it's, th- there's nothing unacceptable about the original graphics, excuse me. Um, but there are no real good reasons to avoid the slightly better graphics, right? Just that, that little glow yeah. up. Um, so I would say the original has no nostalgia goggles required, but if you're going to play it, probably just do one of the re-releases because you know why not the only asterisk i would add to your asterisk (laughs) like a really really tiny asterisk (laughs) is uh that you need to have the discipline not to use the little speed it up and be invincible like buttons they give you in those versions experience the game as what it is and all of the leveling and material mechanics you will lose your will to care about them when you know you have this magical cookie (laughs) that tastes delicious that you can have a bite of whenever you want. And it's much more satisfying, in my opinion, in a game like this to beat it because you are strong enough than to just grab the button. Unless you really only care about the story, and that's literally the only reason you're there. I, I agree entirely, and I'll even say that I had a note that is because of the time crunch of having to record, I find myself ignoring some of the side content that I wanted to go like dip into a little more. Um, and, and you, a lot of those things lose their attraction. If you have the magical superstar that just fixes all your problems for you, right? The, the world is way less interesting to overcome challenges. So yeah, yeah. if you have no like willpower or self-discipline, I guess go back to the PS1 that doesn't have that. Um, <laughs> it's not a great argument, <laughs> but it's, it's more to say a caution about those features that they may actually take away some enjoyment, even though like a drug addict, you won't be able to stop <laughs> turning them on. <laughs> so the, the final, final question, uh, we are recording this uh, before... Final Fantasy VII Remake is released, but this episode will be released just a few days after the game has been released worldwide. Are you, having just played Final Fantasy VII, are you going to play Final Fantasy VII Remake right away? 
I I think I will. I'm I'm interested in it, even though I'm worried that it's going to be Kingdom Hearts combat hack and slash <laughs> nonstop. But still, the even if it is Kingdom Hearts or Final Fantasy 15 all over again, I like the world that this one is playing in. So I might be I might be invested. Yeah, no, I'm right there with you. I I high hopes, but there's also some some legit concerns, <laughs> some some worries. <laughs> there's there's a lot of opportunity for success and failure here. The curtain falls. The music plays. The credits roll, then it all fades to black. And you're left by yourself. The fanfare is gone. There's no player two. There by your side to share victories won. But as you slowly progress down the hall to your bed, a few great events leak back into your head from the time that you spent traversing the land, battling evil, fighting the darkness, just sword in hand. Your memories creep in With the edge of a smile You realize again What you lost for a while You're gonna think back much less On how you saved the day Then on all The experience gained 